Okay, welcome to our um, first of an annual conference we hope to throw. I'm serious, that would be great. Uh, we're glad you're here. We have a lot to do, just so you know the schedule. We start the first lecture in a few minutes. He'll go for as long as you think you need to, about an hour. We'll, we'll tell you when to stop if you go too long. We'll take a 10, 15-minute break. We'll have another session. Take a 10, 15-minute break. We'll have another session. Uh, take a break. And the last session will be Q&A, 30 to 45 minutes at the most. Um, so that puts us out of here, 12, 15, 12, 30. Uh, there are, of course, bathrooms through there. There are snacks out through the foyer there, and then turn left. Uh, a delightful, gracious couple came with these potatoes and onions and vegetables and sausage or something like that, expecting there to be, I think, a men's Bible study. And then the husband says, oops, it got moved to next week or something like that. So they left the food. So if you'd like that, you can have that. It's coffee, water, it might be juices and things like that. Um, so I'm going to introduce... Dr. Renahan, then I'm gonna, going to pray. I don't know when I got to meet Dr. Renahan. I don't know how your brother became my advisor for my PhD. I think I asked you first, and you said you might want to use my brother. I'm serious about that because of his academic background and the fact that he was on the West Coast at the time. I think you were still on the East Coast somehow, some way somebody said, ask Jim Renahan. And uh, anyway, so I got to know the Renahans. At some point, 87, did you move here? 98. 98, I mean, excuse me. 97, I thought it was 97. 1998, they moved down to Escondido. That's when the IRBS, Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, at Westminster Seminary, California, started. And you were there 18 years? 20. 20, 20 years. So, of course, I got to know him at that time, and um, I don't remember how we started emailing and maybe talking on the phone, certainly not texting back then, um, but Im immediately he was answering questions that I had but couldn't answer and wasn't happy with the answers I'd get from some of my other friends, some of my still considered friends. And the reason was because Jim had devoted his life to study the historical and theological background of the Second London Confession and the, the content and meaning of it like nobody I had known ever in my life. And now I'm 61 and I don't know anybody in the world like Jim who's devoted the amount of time that he has to primary source documents and, and writing on it and lecturing all over the world on it. And so we, we, sh we will have a feast today and if we don't have a feast, we'll tell you this is not a feast, but we're going to have a feast. His bad stuff is outstanding. So um, if you notice, we both have similar shirts on, though different color. Um, he's the president of IRB, International Reformed Baptist Seminary now, and I'm one of the professors. So we, we look forward very much to our time together. And for the Q&A, we're going to sit up here, and we'll just take questions We'll probably have you text the questions to me, and I'll determine which are good and not good questions. I'll give you more information on that before, so 
or later. Okay, let's pray and we'll have Jim come up. We thank you, Lord, for this morning, this opportunity to sit um, underneath the teaching of a man who's given himself for 30-something years, maybe even longer, to this uh, focus. We thank you for the grace, the help you've given him. We pray for that same help for us to see the importance of confessing uh, a solid doctrinal statement and implementing it in church life. We ask that you would help our brother, sustain him. We also recognize um, that we have various um, issues going on in our own lives. For example, uh, my daughter-in-law burying a child today. We pray for a healthy delivery and, and good health from mother and baby. We ask your blessings on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Thanks for coming. I was trying to think of something funny to say. Like, oh yeah, I'm here to talk about Thomas Aquinas. But I won't do that. I do hope that you have Bibles with you because we'll be looking at the scriptures a lot as we move forward. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering why this side has a lot of people and this side doesn't. Because that's going to make me keep looking this way. So, folks, don't feel neglected if I tend to look that way. It's just, they did it. It's not my fault. They did it. All right. Uh, Rich asked me to speak about um, the, the benefits of a confession of faith, and uh, we walk our way through our confession of faith. And I also want to talk about, if time permits, how to teach a confession of faith in a family. What's the best method that we can use? You probably can guess what I'm going to say, but I want to talk about that because I think that it is important, not only in the church, but in the home. So let's start with this question and try to answer it. And So I begin here. What is a confession of faith? We talk about them. What is it? Well, a confession of faith is, here's a definition for you. An extensive statement of Christian doctrine, carefully expressed in language that is recognized and understood among Christians through the ages. An extensive statement of Christian doctrine, carefully expressed in language recognized and understood among Christians throughout the ages. And it does at least two things. These are the the two important things that come to mind. The first thing is that a good confession of faith ties us to the universal church. Now there's, there's something that I think uh, we need to put into our minds and it's a really important thing. And that is that we must not be guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. But that's a tendency that we have to think that our day and age is the best day and age and we know everything and so the conclusions to which we come are necessarily the best conclusions. Actually I think that that's a dangerous way to approach Christianity, as if we are the the final and the essential expression of Christianity. I want to suggest to you that the communion of the saints, 
is central. And let me give you two illustrations of this. I hope that they'll be helpful. When I was pastoring, um, planted a church in my hometown in Massachusetts before we came to California. And there was a, a woman in our church, a single mother, um, very Irish. She was a, brought up an Irish Roman Catholic in Boston. And uh, she came to faith in Christ, and she came to our church, and we loved her, and everybody loved her. She was very close with my wife. One day, she came to me after church, and she said something like this. Hey, Jim, Uncle Charlie called me the other day. Now, I'd never met Uncle Charlie. But Uncle Charlie said something to this effect. Doreen, my church was founded by Peter. Your church was founded by Captain John Smith. Now, he had the, the wrong John Smith. He had the story wrong. He's thinking of the Pocahontas John Smith, right? He's got the time frame right, but he's got the people wrong. But he said, Doreen, if my church is as old as Peter, and your church only goes back several hundred years, why do you think that your church, which is new, is better than my church, which is old? And she came to me and she said, what do I say to Uncle Charlie? How, how do I respond to that? And my uh, answer to her went something like this. Well, Doreen, you have to understand that our confession of faith embodies the language of the early church. You know, after the Reformation, the, the Reformers considered the fact that Rome was the, the body that had departed from the faith and that they were reforming the church, uh, that they were bringing it back to what it was during the apostolic age. In fact, one author in a really helpful book, uh, I think it's called uh, John Calvin on the Church Fathers, he, he suggests, and I think he documents it well, that the Reformation was in some ways a dispute about how to understand the Church Fathers. The Reformers were saying, we are the true heirs of the patristic era, the first five centuries of the church. And so I, I said to Doreen, our confession of faith embodies the language of the early church. Now, if you have a copy of a confession, the confession of faith, take it for a moment and turn it to, to chapter 8. Let me show you how this works. Um, I, you know, it, most of the time when I'm speaking about the confession in one of the Reformed Baptist churches somewhere, I can say, take out the Trinity hymnal and look on page such and such. In fact, it's page 674 if you have a Trinity hymnal where you'll find this, but I know that you, you don't have them accessible here. But listen to this. Okay, this is paragraph 2 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. It says this, The Son of God... The second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, what's wonderful about this statement is that it pulls in language from all of the great creeds of the early church. 
There are, we talk about four ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement. It's not really a creed because it's not put in the form of a creed, but we can treat it like one. And then the Athanasian Creed. And if you'll notice some of the language that is present here, it's language that comes right out of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and Chalcedon. Um, for example, when we read here in the middle of the paragraph that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that's language that comes right out of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Or later on, when you notice there are three C words, pretty close to the end, uh, joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. That comes directly from the Chalcedonian Statement uh, from the year 451. And then when the, uh, the paragraph con continues, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ? That's the language of the Nicene Creed. So I said to, to Doreen, here it is. Here's proof that we are the heirs of the early church, that uh, th this idea that Captain John Smith began the Baptist churches, which, like I said, was not exactly accurate. It, it doesn't work because our fathers wanted to tie themselves to the life of the early church, and they did so by the use of that language. Another illustration that I can, I can give you to help to understand this is when we use these four great, what are called ecumenical creeds, Apostles, Nicene, Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed, we identify ourselves with the early church. You know, our, our church in Texas, where we're members, my wife and I, and my son and his family and my daughter, when we observe the Lord's Supper, the church always confesses together the Nicene Creed. It's the next to the last thing in the order of service, the last thing being a benediction. And so it's put up on a screen behind us, and it's printed on paper so everybody has it, and we're able to confess the Nicene Creed. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm confessing my faith in the words of the Nicene Creed is remember that well, since the Nicene Creed in the form we use it comes from the year 381, that's about 17 centuries of Christians who have used that creed to confess the faith in a variety of languages around the world. And I like to imagine myself as one of a great multitude who are able to say in the same thing, we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, etc., etc. I, I, you know, I am joining with a long stream of Christians who have confessed their faith in those specific terms. And so our confession of faith ties us to the communion of the saints, not just horizontally in the world that we live in now, but chronologically. That, that we belong to something that is much greater than ourselves and that has roots in the world, the history of the world, that are far deeper than even the history of the United States of America, that go way beyond that that involve people from all kinds of ethnicities and all kinds of languages in many different places who share the faith with us. I find that incredibly comforting and very, very helpful. So that uh, what I believe is not the result of my thinking about things. I don't trust myself. I really don't trust myself to come to the right conclusions. There are prejudices that I have in my heart. There are ideas that I have in my mind. There are cultural influences upon me. And if I allow those things to come together, I will come to false conclusions. 
But if I remember the words that Jesus spoke to his apostles saying that after he goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit will be present and lead them into truth, then I can say the Holy Spirit has done his work through all of the centuries, 21 centuries at this point. Now, that doesn't mean that there's an uncovering of more truth. It means that, that, that our fathers took the Bible and understood what the Bible says and then framed it into a, a, a doctrine that we're able to understand. And so the, the first benefit that we get from a confession of faith is the fact that it ties us to the universal church. The second benefit that we get, though, is that a confession of faith expresses our distinctives. Now, while we state clearly our common doctrine, Trinitarianism, Christology, justification by faith, we also have some distinguishing doctrines from other Christians and from other churches. And perhaps the the easiest and the one that comes to mind the most quickly for us is our difference with others on the doctrine of baptism. We baptize believers upon their profession of faith because that's what we believe that the word of God teaches. Now, we have great respect and love and appreciation for those who baptize babies. They are Christian brothers and sisters. Their churches are true churches. Their ministry is a true ministry. We need to say all of those things about them, but we do have a difference of opinion. And we, you know, when Rich's grandson is born, I don't expect that uh, those of you who are from uh, GRBC will come here and you'll see him hold the baby in his arms and put some water on the forehead and pronounce the baby to be a Christian. If that happens, let me know because we'll have to do some things about that, okay? We, We have some differences and a confession of faith allows us to express what we have in common with others while still recognizing our distinctives, that which makes us who we are. Now, somebody might ask the question, what's the difference between a creed, brother, you've just been talking about four creeds, and a confession of faith? What's the difference between the two? Let me, let me parse that out for you, and maybe you'll find this to be helpful. In many ways, a creed and a confession serves the same function, and the differences are minimal, but there are some. Here we go. I've got a couple of them I wanted to mention. The first is that a creed is a brief summary of the Christian faith. It's relatively short. The, the longest of the four that I just mentioned is the Athanasian Creed, which kind of bums me out because it's my favorite of the four. I love the way it's phrased. But to recite it in a congregation, it, it probably takes five or ten minutes to do so. So it's rather long and uh, isn't uh, the, the simplest way to put it. But I love its repetition and the way it phrases things. A creed is a brief summary where a confession is a larger and more detailed document. It, it addresses things in more detail. It, it parses out or fleshes out truths that are found in the creed. Second thing, second difference, is that a creed is to be spoken as a whole. That is, we confess it. Um, usually when we use a creed in worship, if it is written in the first person singular, we adapt it to the first person plural. So we don't say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We say, we believe in God the Father Almighty, so that everyone who expresses those words is confessing that. 
But generally speaking, a confession is too long to be recited. Uh, if the Athanasian Creed would take us five, eight, maybe even ten minutes to, to read together and to confess, how long would it take to do 32 chapters of our Confession of Faith? Now, I know I've been in, in churches where they will take out a paragraph and use that very well in worship as a means of confessing the faith. And I affirm that. I think that that's a really good idea. But it's only a portion. If you take chapter 11, paragraph 1 on justification, and you recite that together, you're, you're giving a very fine statement about justification by faith. But there are 31 other chapters and several paragraphs in chapter 11 that you're not doing at that time. Where if you recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something from the, uh, the Chalcedonian definition, everyone together is able to say those things at the same time. The third difference, and I don't remember where I read this. I wish I had footnoted it. This is not original to me, but I find it very helpful. A creed, because it's brief, states what Christians must believe. Okay, it's, it's laying out for us the most basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith. But a confession states what Christians ought to believe. Do you understand the difference between those? The creed is short, it's brief, and it tells us what we must believe. The confession of faith tells us what we should believe. Um, I'll give you an example. Our confession of faith um, contains some of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith. An easy illustration of this is chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 11 of justification by faith. You'll remember that quotation that's attributed to Martin Luther that the article that justification is the article of a standing or falling church and what he meant by that is if you get justification right there's a claim that can be made that you're a true church if you get justification wrong if you incorporate works in some way your church has fallen that's his point and so chapter 11 of justification is a very important chapter in the confession but it's immediately followed by chapter 12 of adoption. Now, we heard a lecture this week on ad adoption in Puritan theology. It was very good. It was by Joel Beakey, very helpful, very useful. And he talked about how the Puritans, uh, in many ways, were the first ones to have an extensive doctrine of adoption. It's a wonderful thing. But I would suggest to you that if somebody gets the doctrine of adoption wrong, they, their church has not fallen. And yet it's the immediately following chapter after the chapter on justification by faith. That contrast between the two is a very helpful contrast for us to keep in mind. We ought to believe what our confession of faith teaches us about adoption, but if you get it wrong, it's not deadly in the way that if you get justification by faith wrong, that is deadly to your church. So it's an important distinction. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, the Athanasian Creed, all Christians must agree on those things. But when we come to the longer confessions of faith, the 39 articles of the Church of England, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Congregational Savoy Declaration, or our own Second London Confession of Faith, these documents incorporate the essentials of the creeds, but then the distinctives of each body. 
And so we're not Presbyterians, so we don't adhere to the Presbyterian doctrine of the Westminster Confession. We're Congregationalists who believe in believer's baptism, and that's the, the difference between our confession and the Westminster. We love and we appreciate and we admire the Westminster Confession of Faith, and yet we do have our distinctives, and yet we share with them the common language, the common thoughts, the common theology that we find in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, and the Athanasian Creed. So we agree on essentials, and we acknowledge our differences, and this helps us to refuse to unchurch others who disagree with us. We, we don't want to do that. You know, spending 20 years at Westminster Seminary in Escondido was an incredibly helpful experience for me because I was, I was the, uh, the one Baptist among a sea of Presbyterians. You know what? They treated me with kindness and with generosity and with welcoming arms, and they showed how Christians ought to treat those who have some differences from them. But I think together we showed how Christians who have differences of opinion can work together very closely for an important common goal. And it was a demonstration uh, to those who were looking of how that can work out. I'm very thankful to God for those men at Westminster, for the friendships and the relationships, and the ability to acknowledge one another, to support one another, and to assist one another. So a confession of faith does that for us. It allows us to express our distinctives while we share in common the most fundamental doctrines. Let me talk some more about other things that a confession of faith does, and then I want to uh, talk about its importance. You see, in light of what I've just said, we need to recognize that a confession of faith draws boundaries. Boundaries of inclusion and boundaries of exclusion. And both of those are important. In fact, a good confession of faith will be exclusive when it comes to the foundational matters of the church, and it will be inclusive when it comes to matters that are perhaps secondary or tertiary in the Christian life. Um, and our confession of faith does that very, very well. As I've just demonstrated to you, it uses the language of the ancient um, ecumenical creeds, but at the same time, it focuses our attention upon the distinctives of our own uh, practice. Based carefully on scripture, as scripture has been understood by Christians from the beginning, that is, writing a confession in dialogue with the history of the church, it provides to us a great deal of assistance in knowing who belongs and who doesn't. Uh, just uh, two weeks ago on Saturday morning, for the first time since the coronavirus pandemic began, the doorbell rang and guess who was on the other side of the door? It was a Jehovah's Witness. They're, they're back. Well, our confession of faith helps me to not hate the Jehovah's Witness, but it helps me to know that that man who denies the eternal deity of the Son of God, that that man cannot be considered one, a brother in Christ, one with me in the faith. And my confession of faith helps me to be able to draw that boundary. Where, <clears throat> pardon me, if it had been, uh, now we don't have a, an OPC or a PCA church in the city where I live, but if it had been someone visiting from uh, an OPC or a PCA church, 
I would have been able to say, hey, come on in. Let's talk about things that we have in common. That would have been great. A very different exclusion and inclusion along the way. Now, I, I want to ask and try to answer the question, why is a confession of faith important for a local church? Because that's where it comes down to. Uh, local churches uh, are the really the world in which we live, the, the microcosm of the macrocosm. And uh, all of us belong in one way or another to a local church. We need to think about confessions and our churches. And so I want to suggest to you that there are actually many reasons why a confession of faith is beneficial to the local church. And so I want to talk about its importance within the church and then its importance outside of the church. Um, so that's where we're going. I forgot to bring my watch on this trip with me, so I have to keep touching my phone to see what, uh, what, uh, what the time is. See how the, the uh, fellow who's hosting this, I, I don't want to raise his wrath against me. I don't want to, he, he's supposed to take me to the airport on Monday, and I want him to take me to the airport on Monday, so I have to pay attention here. All right, let's talk about the importance of a confession of faith within the church. <clears throat> the first thing that I would say is this. <clears throat> Hope you'll forgive me. <clears throat> a confession of faith provides a cl clear, content, clear content to our faith. It provides clear content to our faith. Okay, here's a question for you. Just answer this in your own mind. What is faith? What is faith? Oh, our culture might say that faith is like a blind leap. You take a leap of faith. You just trust that whatever this is, whatever this does, you hope that it will come out well. Some people would say that faith is a feeling. Well, I, I really feel strongly about this. Others might think of faith as a mystical experience. I was by myself one day, and suddenly this thought came upon me, and I was moved by the thought, etc., etc. Is that what, what faith is? No, actually, faith is an intelligent understanding of the truth. It's our commitment to the truth as it is presented to us. That's what it is. Take your Bibles. Let's, let's have an example of this. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Very familiar words. In the middle of Romans 10, the righteousness of faith speaks, and this is verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the, the, uh, the righteousness of faith say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Right? Now here we are talking about the gospel. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about fundamentally important matters. And we ought, when we read the, uh, verses 8 and 9, there, there are some things that ought to come, before, come to our attention. What does Paul mean when he says, um, 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we're familiar with that because these are words that we have heard, that probably that we have spoken, maybe even encounters with non-Christians. We've spoken to them these words. But what does it mean? For example, who is Jesus? A lot of people don't know, especially in our culture, the, the more pagan it becomes, they don't have an idea of who Jesus is. And if they do, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the eternal Son of God who assumed to himself human nature and is forever the mediator between God and man. They don't think of him in those terms. They think of him perhaps as a great teacher, as a moral example, but they don't think of him in the way that they ought to think of him. Why is he Lord? What does that mean? You know, we're, we're living in a, a day in our society where even the notion of someone being in a position of authority and being called Lord is a bad thing. After Queen Elizabeth II died, you probably saw, as I did, um, those who would, would say, now is the time to, for England to do away with the monarchy because it's a remnant of an old system that no longer stands and we ought not to allow it to stand. And so you, you say that Jesus is Lord and you will offend people by that statement. What right does he have to be my Lord? What does it mean that he has lordship? Or why is his resurrection important? Why does Paul say, uh, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved? You see, all, all of a sudden, this simple statement becomes very complex because you can't just read it to people and say, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. You have to tell them who Jesus is. You have to tell them why Jesus is. Why does Paul talk about the resurrection here? Did you ever consider that? Is, it, is salvation simply the result of, in English at least, saying three words, Jesus is Lord, and believing that he rose from the dead. I would suggest to you that Paul is here using theological shorthand. And that shorthand focuses on the resurrection because the resurrection is the hinge upon which everything else depends. Okay? Think about it with me. We can go in two directions here. If we think about the, the, what comes before resurrection, why did he rise from the dead? Why did he die? What happened when he died? What is it that made his death, which you're telling me is an atoning sacrifice that will satisfy the wrath of God, what is it that makes that allows his death to be special as over against any of the other billions of deaths that have happened in the history of the world? What qualified him? Now all of a sudden, you see, we're moving backwards and we're beginning to think about the theology of the gospel itself. Who Jesus is and why Jesus did what he did. What qualifies him? Well, he lived a life of obedience to the law of God. How could he do that if he was a human? It's because he was born of the Virgin Mary, and because the Holy Spirit came upon her, which sends us to eternity. All of a sudden, we're way back there, simply because we're thinking about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You see, believing that God raised him from the dead is not the issue, it's the pointer to a much greater issue. Let's go in the other direction. If he rose from the dead, where is he today? Okay, where is he? Did he die again? No, we believe that he ascended into heaven. 
that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he makes intercession on behalf of his people, and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. See what I mean when I say that the resurrection is the hinge upon which everything turns? So Paul here is not giving us a reductionistic view of the gospel, but rather he's focusing our attention upon that event which makes us think backwards and forwards about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so faith is not simply an acknowledgement of one particular historical act, but rather it's a growing understanding of who Christ is and what he has done and what he will do when he returns. Paul turns us to the fullness of Christian doctrine here. And, And Paul says, if you believe these things, you'll be saved. This is deliverance from the life of death. This is eternal life. This is finding forgiveness. This is an an eternal relationship with the God of heaven and earth that he grants us through his son. So faith all of a sudden is not a mystical experience. It's not a blind leap. It's not a feeling. It's not just trust Jesus, whoever Jesus is and whatever Jesus has done. Just trust Jesus and all will be well. Not at all. It is to be taken from our sins and granted the forgiveness and bringing us to eternal life. You see, a confession of faith provides content to our faith. It gives us something that we can hold on to and say, I am who I am because I'm a sinner, because I've broken God's law, I have violated his commandments, I've raised my fist to heaven. I've rebelled against him. I have been an idolater. I've allowed everything that is contrary to his will to be attached to my mind, and I have often followed those things. And yet in his grace and in his mercy, he sent his son, who satisfied, who lived a life of righteousness and satisfied the demands of God's law against sinners in his death upon the cross, and he rose from the dead. And I trust in him. I forsake all my own works. I don't depend on who I am, my family heritage, the the good works that I've done. You know, when I was a boy, I thought that that salvation was you you stand before God and and there's a scale. If your good works outweigh your bad works, you, you enter. If your bad works outweigh your good works, then you can't enter. How wrong I was. It's God's free gift. But I need to understand that, you see. I need to know what that is. And that's what a confession of faith does for us. All right. Secondly, a confession of faith provides a basis of unity in the church. A couple of texts to look at. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Variously translated in different ways. I typically use the NKJV, which actually obscures the language that Paul uses here. 1 Timothy 3.16, mine says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Then we have six lines that speak about Christ descending from heaven and ascending back up to heaven. But as I said, this in some ways obscures it. The ESV is better here because it says, great indeed we confess. Because Paul does use the word for confession. Even better Uh, perhaps would be a translation that says something like this, confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. The old NASB says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The point that Paul is making 
is that Christians together recognize this statement, confessedly great, by common confession. This is what Christians say. And what do they say? God was manifested in the flesh. That's a statement about the incarnation. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This is our common confession. In John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer prior to his uh, trial, arrest, trial, and crucifixion speaks to this issue as well. For the sake of time, I won't read the entire passage, verses 9 through 26, but we'll pick up at verse 17 through 19. Jesus is praying to the Father for us. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, do you notice how Jesus speaks about the Christian life and that which belongs to all of the saints. He's not praying for Methodists or Presbyterians or Baptists here. He's praying for everyone. And he's calling upon his Father in heaven to pray that there would be, that they would grow, that they would be sanctified, that their holiness would increase as a result of the truth. And so Jesus' prayer is answered when there is unity in the truth. You know, unity in a church is not a feeling. We, for the last, ever since the Enlightenment, really, Western society has become more and more focused on emotion, feeling, romanticism, such things. And so when we walk out of church after a Sunday in which the singing has been great and the preaching has been powerful and our hearts have been united in prayer, we say, wow, what a great worship service that was. And it was, and all of those things are true, but ultimately unity comes in the truth. So that when the singing isn't so good, because the pianist and everybody, nobody's ever sung the tune before, so you do your best to muddle through, and the preaching was dull and boring, you still confess the truth. And so there was unity, even though maybe you don't feel the way you feel often when you leave after a really uplifting worship service. It's not feeling, it's not mutual interests, it's the truth. Um, Frank and I have been friends for a long time. And Frank is an apostate from the truth in that he used to be a, a supporter of the Boston Red Sox. And then he gave himself over to the evil empire at some point. Now he, he knows, I put it this way, in 1963 I accepted the Boston Red Sox into my heart. <laughs> Now, Tom's got it right. When I got to Frank's house last night, what was he wearing? A New York Yankees hat. And I said to him, I said, you put that on on purpose because you wanted to get at me. We did not have unity at that point. But you know what? I love Frank and Debbie. And we've loved each other for years. And though we have fun with that difference, you know, I can call him an apostate. He was smiling back there. You couldn't see him. He knows where I'm going with that. We can have that difference, but be united in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, that, we can't let that go between us. And so that's, that's what has allowed us to have such a great relationship all these years. Um, Cameron and Joy, Cameron was a deacon in our church in Vista. 
and uh, what, what a wonderful family they were. And, you know, I, I thank God for that. And if you guys want to root for the Dodgers, go ahead. You stole Mookie Betts from us. <clears throat> well, anyways, okay, enough baseball, right? Yeah, I don't bleed Dodger blue. In fact, you don't either. If you bleed, cut yourself, what color is it? That tells you who you ought to support. <laughs> the, the third thing is, right, Tom? Yeah, yeah, see, see he knows. He's, he's got it right. He thinks straight. The third thing that it does for a church is that it pr- provides a foundation for life and for godliness. Um, what is the Christian life about? I would suggest to you that the decisions that we make in life must be informed by the faith that we confess. You know, um, when I was involved in uh, pastoral ministry on a regular basis, and people would come to me with questions or problems or difficulties that they were facing, I learned not to directly answer their question at first. They would come to me and they would have a practical matter and they would say, Pastor, what should I do? And I learned that the best answer that I could give to them was not to say, well, I think that this is the way to go. I would ask them first, what do you believe? What do you believe? Because what we believe ought to mold and shape how we live. Right doctrine comes before right living. That's the foundation upon which we are to build. In fact, our confession of faith, in one of its most beautiful statements, um, listen to these words in chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity. This is the most challenging doctrine of the Christian faith, right here. The most incomprehensible one that we are glad to do our best to understand and confess, but I can't explain it, you can't explain it. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, okay, big theological word. The Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Okay? That's that's a lot. That's a challenging paragraph. As I said, I think it's probably the most difficult doctrine that we confess. And yet what comes next? Maybe you notice I stopped. Look at what comes next. Which doctrine of the Trinity, okay, the most challenging doctrine of the Christian faith, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him? I want to have communion with God. And as Dr. Owen put it, John Owen, I want to have communion with God in three persons, with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. And I want to have comfortable dependence on him so that in the little things and in the big things of life that challenge us, I want to be able to depend on him. But in order to do so, I need to be able to confess the doctrine of the Trinity. See, all of a sudden, our Puritan fathers put us back into the, uh, 
this, this central and most foundational truth of the Christian faith to say that's where the communion that we have with God in our worship, personal and, and public, comes. It's in the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's where our comfort comes in this life when we face whatever are the challenges that come to us. We take comfort in the fact that there is one God who has subsisted eternally in three persons. And we bow before Father, Son, and Spirit in order to make this point. Um, look with me at 2 Peter 1.4. Beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Wow. Become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become little gods. But we enter into communion with him. How? Through the exceedingly great and precious promises of his word. Once again, we're not talking about emotion. We're not talking about mystical experiences. We're talking about the truth. So that what we believe always precedes what we do. And what we do is, an, is always an outworking of what we believe. One of my friends has a sentence that he, he says, I've simplified it into three words. Theology disciplines everything. Theology disciplines everything. So prior to making decisions in your life, you ought to ask, what do I believe? And when you ask that question and come to an answer, I believe this, that will give you guidance as to what to do. And a confession of faith provides that for you. It gives you a foundation. It presents to you a pathway where you can say, this is what the word of God teaches. And because the word of God teaches this, that tells me that the direction that I must follow is this or that, but not the one that I wondered, and maybe not the one that attracted me. I need to go after this other thing as well. All right. Fourthly, a confession of faith provides theological safety and stability to the members of a believing church. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. You're, you've read the book of Hebrews. You know that it's, um, it has an interesting structure. It, in fact, it's a sermon. I wish I could take the time to, to talk about Hebrews as a sermon, but that's what it is. It's a sermon from the early church that has been recorded for us. And it begins with wonderful, powerful language about Christ, and it turns our attention to him as both God and man. Then we have a warning passage at the beginning of chapter 2. And it goes on, and it gives us some more doctrinal instruction. We have another warning passage. And then a long doctrinal section from chapter 6 through chapter 10, verse 18. And all of that is to say Christ is superior to everything else. 
He's better than the Mosaic Covenant. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's better than the sacrifices. Everything is to turn to Jesus and trust in him. Okay, So we, we have that truth. Forgive me if this thing keeps falling, but it, it does sometimes. When we come to verse 19 of chapter 10, we come to the longest application section. And actually, verses 19 and 20 and 21 are a summary of the previous doctrine. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way through which, which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, that's a wonderful summary of, of the long section from chapter 6 that he has just gone through in the doctrines that he told us. Now he gives three applications. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's conversion and baptism. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And then let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The, the writer here, or the, the preacher, who probably is Paul, is saying to us that faith is a lifelong act. You see, we hold, verse 23, we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Faith is a lifelong act. Faith faces many circumstances, and it may struggle. In fact, it may have instances of doubt. One thing we need to say is that weak faith does not equal no faith. There's a difference between the unbeliever, the, the weak believer, the young believer, and the mature believer. But that the one who has true faith, even though it is weak, is still a believer. We need to recognize that fact. Now, a confession of faith is an external document that if adopted by a congregation, by a family, by an individual, because it reflects the truth of the Bible, provides to us help in times of trouble. It summarizes for us the doctrine of the scripture so that we are helped in our weakness. We go to Christ, the Christ who is eternally God, the Christ who is now joined together with humanity, who is one with us, who forever knows who we are. So that here in the book of Hebrews, for example, how often does this sermon turn our attention to the one who sits on the heavenly throne and says he is able to sympathize with, our, with us in our weaknesses because he endured temptation. But we can only say that because we confess that he is truly God and truly man, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, etc., a confession of faith provides us help so that we are able to go to him, the one that we know as God and man, etc. Let me, let me see. Oh, boy. Um, when did you want me to stop at 9? or You have to give me direction here. 905, okay. It's always frustrating when you, you ask you know, the hosts, what, what do you want me to do? They say, ah, you know, whatever. Thanks a lot. Thank you for 905. That'll work. Okay. 
fourth, uh, fifth thing that we can say about a confession of faith, and we'll have more to say about this later, God willing, is it provides us a basis for instructing children and converts. It provides us a basis for instructing children and converts. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And go all the way back to the beginning. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You probably know these words. Words, this, this was for Israel what we would call a memory verse. Now, with our children, we might teach them as their first memory verse, John 3.16, or some such thing from the New Testament, typically. But every little Hebrew girl and boy would have been taught this as the very first thing, as the foundation of their lives. It's called the Shema. Shema is simply a Hebrew word that means hear. So the first word in, translated in English, if it were Hebrew, it would be Shema. But notice what the text says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Israel needed this truth because Israel was living in a world full of cultures that were given over to polytheism. Gods of the mountains, gods of the clouds, gods of the fields, gods of the streams, gods of who knows what. And they were going into that environment when they entered Canaan and they needed to be reminded that there was one God and they were to worship that one God alone. Sadly, they didn't. They fell prey to the, the gods of the nations around them, of the Canaanites. And it wasn't until the Lord punished them by sending them into 70 years of exile in Babylon that this polytheism was driven out of their minds and their hearts. So one of the, the saddest things about the, the history of the nation of Israel is that they continually gave themselves to idolatry. They forgot about this most basic Word where the Lord says, learn it and teach it in your homes, teach it to your children. Now, if we had the time to work through this, we would see how the New Testament picks up this theme that there is one God, but it begins to expand the doctrine. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We could go to Philippians chapter 2. We could go to... Um, uh, the text that we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we could look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and see how the New Testament builds upon this doctrine that there is one God, teaching us that the one God exists forever in three persons, that the second person of the one God assumed our human nature, that God saves us by faith in him. The, the lifelong act of faith is a growing process. Yesterday, we were at the Puritan Conference, and immediately in front of me, just to the left, was a woman with a brand newborn baby. I was trying to guess. I would say that the baby was probably no more than a month old. Very small little baby. They, you know, Even when the baby cried, there wasn't much noise that came from the baby. That's how young it was. 
And they were giving the baby a little bit of a bottle and they were uh, rocking the baby and helping the baby. And I thought, I wonder what will be the case with that baby throughout life. You know, the baby can't hear right now as I think it was Ligon Duncan was preaching. Baby can't pay attention to that, can't hear it, doesn't know what's going on. But the baby was here. The baby was here. But as that baby grows, there's, there's a, a learning process. Well, the same is true with the life of faith. We, we learn. We're like children. We're not born with a knowledge of Christian doctrine. When we come into the faith, as converts, we may be blown about by every wind of doctrine. But a confession does for us what the Shema did for Israel, or what it should have done for Israel, is keep them in the way so that they could say, uh, all the Baals, the Baals, whatever they were, and whatever clouds or streams or, or valleys they happened to be the gods of, were nothings. There's one God in heaven and in earth. A confession of faith supplies us with a summary of the need, uh, the needs that we have. Um, I was told 905, it's now 906, and I have two brief points to keep going with, if I may. Okay, two more things to say. Sixthly, a confession of faith provides guidelines for elders. We ask the question, what should we teach? And why should we teach it? Well, a confession of faith provides to us information so that we know what those who have gone before us have believed are the most important things that need to be brought to the minds of God's people. And then lastly, the last thing I'll say here, that there's more that could be said about that, but you, you can parse it out. The last thing that I'll say is that a confession of faith protects the church from threats, both internal and external. And, you know, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 20, there's a, a little notation in Paul's words as recorded by Luke that it's easy for us to skip over, but we need to be very much aware of what is said. As Paul says his goodbyes to the Ephesian elders, look at verse 30, 29. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves. Men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. There is a real danger that faces every church. External threats, where savage wolves may come in, disguised, but their goal is to devour the flock. But Paul says, even internally, there may be those who rise up from among you and who will seek to lead you astray. Now, there's no way that we can provide a sure and certain means of protection. But I would say this, a confession of faith provides to a church an objective standard. It does provide a means against personal interpretation and when faithfully applied, protects the church from this danger. Now, that, that takes a lot of integrity. One of the questions that I am asked, I was asked it uh, very recently, what steps are you taking to ensure that your seminary remains faithful to the truth? Because seminaries tend to depart from the truth. My first answer was, you need to remember that that's true of churches as well. 
There's no church that is guaranteed that in perpetuity it will hold on to the truth. And all I bet that we have to do is drive around Palmdale a little bit and we'll see congregations that once were faithful that no longer believe the truth at all. So it's not a matter that's specific to seminaries. It's a matter that, that strikes the church. And it comes, if, if a church or seminary has a commitment to a confession of faith and the men who are leading are men of integrity, who mean what they say, then the people will have protection. But it also allows to the people of God a means by which they can hold their teachers accountable. If you've adopted a confession of faith and your elders are starting to depart in one direction or another, you can, it takes a little bit of courage to do this, hold their feet to the fire. Say, that's, that's not what our confession of faith says. And when you agreed to be an elder in this church, you agreed that you would resign if you ever departed from the confession of faith. So that's what you need to do. Now, I know what will probably happen. You'll be attacked. But still, that was, that's the right thing to do. And it gives you a level of protection. Well, I think we'll, we'll have to pick up here after the break and talk about the importance of a confession of faith outside the church. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about our confession of faith and then get to how to teach a confession of faith.